Welcome to the dark forest Jackie and her pals will never bore us Shameless confessions about our obsessions Will make us laugh and smile So let's explore the dark forest And dark down for a while Happy New Year! Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. You're listening to The Dork Forest. It is available on all of the websites, and including iTunes and Stitcher and YouTube. And if you go to dorkforest.com or jackiecation.com, you'll find links to all of it. And then I have another podcast with Lori Kilmartin just about stand-up comedy. But this is The Dork Forest, and it's January 2020, so Happy New Year, and feel free to start donating again. That's right. Donations went off last year, and I don't blame you, but uh, think of me. And PayPal will let you do it monthly if you want, but I understand if you don't want, because monthly is um, is its own commitment. But the people who do do it monthly, ha I said do-do. Uh, I totally appreciate that. But there is also going to be new merch. I'm phasing out one of the uh, Dork Forest t-shirts. I think it's the black one. It might be the green one. The green one's almost completely out of stock, so I think it might be the Dork Forest one itself. But uh, feel free to try and order stuff so that I can get those two new shirts on the website, because right now the merch page is a bit crowded, shall we say. By the way, my website is done by Vilmos. You know that. The song that was just sang was composed by Mike Rickberg. He'll sing his version of the Mexican hat dance at the end of the program. And Patrick Brady is going to fix this audio and has been doing it for low these many years. And I genuinely appreciate that about him uh, so much. The new shirts are going to be a shirt with a bunch of my dad's sayings and a drawing of his face uh, on uh, that Jenny Fine did. And Jenny Fine, of course, was the uh, artist who did the Meat Shield t-shirt. And she also did the art for the Horcrux album and DVD. You can get all of uh, my old merch still at JackieCation.com. And the new merch, feel free to email me, Jackie at JackieCation.com. And we'll figure it out, is what I'm saying. Um, I'm going to record a new album in 2020, but I don't know where or when. Uh, feel free to come and watch me work on the new hour at JackieCation.com. has all of my tour dates and at JackieCation on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. There's also a Dork Forest Ranger page that you can get into. Donations, PayPal, Venmo, do whatever you need to do. But I'm very appreciative of everybody's support over the last 13 years. Let's get into some dorkdoms, shall we? Hey, this is Jackie Cation. I'm in my living room, but because of the thing, my guest is not in her living room. And hello and welcome uh, to the program, Louisa Ribble. Hi. Right? Yeah, no, I'm in my basement. It's pretty boring. Ooh, you have a basement? Yes. Well, it's a it's a three the split level house, so oh, I, still ha- I still have daylight, but you know the floor is concrete, so you know. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Um, Louisa Rabol, by the way, uh, works uh, Caltech at the Infrared Science uh, at URSA Infrared Science Archive. Yep. And um, we're going to be talking astronomy. Uh, you study the rotation and variability of young stars. I do. We did an episode that's on Facebook and it's archived. It was a live Facebook thing called Universe Unplugged. And we met and you were fascinated. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) And so I have this to say. Hooray. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to the program. Thank you. So I... I like to start all of my science-based dork for us with this little anecdote. I have a friend who teaches AP physics. And one time we were playing a board game and I said to Judy Adler, we've conquered gravity, right? (laughs) Like we could control gravity, right? And that's what she did. She laughed. And she said, what have you been reading? (laughs) And so talk to me, because you're you're like an astrophysicist or some darn, you're a rocket scientist or some damn thing, right? Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I study how stars form and I study uh, the rotation rates of stars. So most of the time, you you know, you don't think very much about the sun, but you know, without the sun, we wouldn't be here. And without magnetic fields, the sun would be as boring 
boring as most people think it is. And because the sun has magnetic fields, it has all of these spots and flares and coronal mass ejections, basically big explosions on the surface of the sun. And those surface blemishes rotate into and out of view so that we can figure out how fast the sun rotates. And Galileo did this as part of why he went blind, unfortunately, was because he was studying the sun through his (laughs) telescope, watching the spots move across the sun. And so the sun rotates in about a month at the at the equator. It goes around about 28 days um, and uh, goes slower at the poles because the equator goes faster. It's a fluid. It's a plasma. The sun is. So it's not solid at all. It's not it's not like the Earth where the you know, the Earth is a clump of rock and rotates as a solid body, essentially. Um, But the sun is very different. The sun is made out of plasma. And so the equator rotates faster than the poles. And um, stars that are younger than the sun have even stronger magnetic fields. And so whereas at its most active, we might have a few percent of the sun's face covered in spots. For these young stars, you can have more than half the face of the star covered in spots. So as the star rotates, you see relatively large changes in brightness as the star rotates in, you know, rotates the spot, goes into and out of view. And you see a relatively large change in brightness. And so you can figure out how fast the star is spinning. Wow. So, okay. Cause, cause you're like, um, it's, it's like when you, um, when you do, I don't, I don't do ballet, but, uh, <laughs> when do you I. do ballet <laughs> and when you, but when you spin, you're supposed to look at a, a, a spot, a, a stationary spot. So you're the stationary spot and you're watching that plasma ball spin. Yeah. And every time a, a flare you've seen before come up, you can sort of figure out how fast the rotation is because of that? Yeah, well, the spot, really. So the, the spots produce yeah. the flares and sometimes the explosions. But the, So the spots um, persist for a couple of rotations, and so you can watch them. They'll, you know, they'll rotate out of view and you wait long enough, and they do come back around. Um, okay. But, yeah, you're absolutely right with the idea of a, of a skater, of a, of a ballet dancer spinning. You know, she, yeah. you're right that she keeps her head still so she doesn't get motion sick, right? Skaters, <laughs> skaters aren't so lucky. Skaters... You know, that when they, they spin really, really fast. And when they start out, often their arms are out and maybe a leg is out. And as they pull yeah. in their arms and the leg, they go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Stars do that, too. So the very oh, really. Yeah. So the very earliest, very youngest stars are pretty big. They're big clouds of gas and dust. And as that gas and dust collapses, it starts spinning faster and faster and faster and faster. And for a long time, nobody understood how stars could even form, because if you just work on the math, they should not ever they should basically spin themselves apart before they create a star. So trying to understand, because spin like that is one of those things in the universe that's conserved. Like you have to keep track of where the energy is, and you have to keep keep track of where the spin is, the angular momentum. And so when you have a big cloud spinning very slowly, it becomes a small star spinning very, very, very fast and trying to figure out where (laughs) all that spin went is part of what yeah. I'm doing, trying to figure out where the angular momentum is going. And some people think it might have something to do with planet formation. It uh, certainly involves magnetic fields and all sorts of complicated fluid dynamics. It's really cool, but it's still a puzzle. Uh, understanding the rotational We're- evolution of stars is really confusing. Right. Okay. So now you've mentioned it a couple of times. You have to know that uh, my big takeaway from eighth grade science, which was all I think the last science I've taken, um, (laughs) was I I can draw Snoopy. (laughs) Uh, So not cool. (laughs) So the magnetic force is that different than gravity or is that the same does that so what do it we is, know it is different so it's, it's different so you can if you just stand in the middle of your kitchen and drop a magnet it falls but if you stand in the same kitchen and put the magnet on your fridge it doesn't fall right right so yeah so you've got you know electricity and magnetism tend to operate um on smaller scales than gravity usually does gravity usually is operating on large scales um okay but uh you know certainly in your kitchen you can make electricity and magnetism beat gravity right because the magnet sticks on your fridge so yeah. the yeah so magnets you know mag- magnetism is a really really complicated thing it's like so for years when i was in grad school um they yeah. would always say you know if you slept through colloquium and you're trying to look intelligent you can raise your hand during the question period and say have you considered magnetic fields because almost certainly <laughs> nobody has and it makes it sound like you were paying attention the whole time and really engaged with what the speaker was saying because almost certainly okay. they ignored magnetic fields and almost certainly they make a difference so magnetic fields makes the astrophysics complicated because you 
have to take into account, uh, you know, a whole bunch of effects that, you know, it'd be easier to ignore. <laughs> that, right, right. And uh, what is colloquial? What is that? Colloquium. Oh, sorry. Colloquium. It's a like a most departments have like a weekly formal talk. Nobody does at the moment okay. because COVID-19. Uh, but, yeah. Right. right. Um, but yeah. So uh, I, you know, here in Pasadena, there are many, many talks on any given week. You know, you could you could spend a significant well on a normal week. What's normal anymore? But on yeah. <laughs> a normal week, you could spend a significant fraction of your week just going to talks because there are many institutions in Pasadena that do astronomy. There's Caltech, where I work. But then there's okay. also the Carnegie Observatories, which is north of the 210. Oh. And there's JPL, which is... Jet yeah, the Jet labs, Propulsion right? Lab up the hill. And there's, uh, you go a little bit further um, west and you hit UCLA, go a little bit further east and you hit Pomona. Uh, and so there's okay. lots of astronomy going on, you know, in the Los Angeles area. So you could just go to talks all week because there's, you know, there's usually and some talk somewhere. Right, right. And those are called co colloquial. Uh, Colloquia, yeah. Sorry. Thank you. Like seminars. And, uh, seminars, all, you know, yeah, also, seminars. Yeah, it's just. Right, and talks. Yeah, and it's, there's a lot of PowerPoint. <laughs> there's a, you know. <laughs> people, people made graphs. Yes, people exactly. People made graphics. Exactly. That's, and it can be about anything with astronomy. It could be, it, it, it covers all of. It's available in all of those different places to they they could discuss anything, whether it's stars or planets or yeah, pretty whatever. much. I mean, the different institutions have different um, different strengths. So sure. there are people like at JPL who who study the immediate Earth environment because the Earth has a magnetic field, and that's a really good thing because the magnetic field helps protect us from the explosions on the sun, right? Because then when there's a big explosion on the sun, that exploding material moves out through the solar system, and it's all charged, huh. which means that the, okay. it sees the magnetic field and the Earth's magnetic field basically pushes the stuff around uh, and avoids, you know, the, the stuff doesn't hit Earth. It goes, it gets channeled around the magnetic field. And so there are people okay. who study the dynamics of the Earth's magnetic field. And so that's really close by. And there are people at JPL that study the moon. And there, and then there are people in many of all of these institutions that study things in our solar system. There's lots of people at JPL that study things in our solar system. But then there are, you know, people who study things at the very edge of our solar system and people that study the right. other stars and people that study other stars, you know, far away in our galaxy and the people that study <laughs> other galaxies and the people who study things at the edge of the universe. So, yeah, the talks will go yeah. every, every week. <laughs> so, there's talks from everything, right? There's talks from really local stuff to really far away stuff. Exactly. And so stars, are, like our sun is a star. Yes. Let us start at the beginning. <laughs> and our sun is a star and it is not a young star. It's a medium star? Yeah, it's kind of a middle-aged star. You know, oh, it's that's in, nice. Yeah, it's in the middle of its life, comfortably puttering okay. along. Excellent. And then, um, and so what is, what is the, and, and then the, our planets, obviously, <laughs> this is, this is, feel free to start a drinking game, everyone. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, so the planets go around the star. Yes. And, uh, and that is the Milky Way? No. Or, so it, our, nope. 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 <laughs> Damn so. it. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so when we were doing the, the Universe Unplugged thing, we were talking about stars form. So let's do a quick review for the people that didn't yet go look at the Universe Unplugged video. Yeah. Um, so stars start as a big cloud of gas and dust, and they okay. collapse down. And because of the way the physics works, it doesn't all just go whoop into a ball in the middle. It falls onto a disk first. So I used to be able to say things like a CD <laughs> or a record, right. but who does those things anymore? <laughs> so... I burned a CD yesterday for my dad. Well, there you go. Um, so, you know, maybe Frisbee would be a better analogy. Right. I'm not sure. but, but a disc, right? A disc of matter. Right. And then from that disc, um, it, the, the, the stuff continues to fall onto the, the young star at the center. But that disc, because everything in the disc is moving in the same direction in a plane, that is how you end up with the solar systems like we have, right? With all the planets oh. going in the same direction around the sun in a plane, right? So okay. that's that's how you get planetary systems that are all going the same direction, um, you know, all pretty much in the same plane. Now, as we, uh, so the disk is our is our is our is our the disk is our solar system. Yeah, it's our baby solar and system. Our, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And the bigger solar system is the Go ahead. No, so the so that's that's how you get the solar system, right? That's how you get okay. all those the planets in a in a plane moving in the same direction. Um okay. and then out when you when you get out of our solar system and you start to look at the other stars, um mm-hmm. then you find that um, all of the there's a whole bunch of stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and those are it's also a galaxy. Yeah, it's yes. our galaxy. So the the Milky Way also, just like a young star system, has a big mass at the center and then a disk of stuff around it. It's just in the case of a young star, you've got a baby star in the center and a pl- and a disk of stuff around it that's going to become planets. But in the case of the Milky Way, you've got a supermassive black hole in the center and then a disk of other stars you know, all going around it in the same direction, pretty much. So what? Yeah, it's the same physics, just a much different scale. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, w- uh, wait, in the center of the Milky Way, there's a black hole. Yeah, a supermassive black hole. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. If you, it sounds amazing. It is. Amazing. Uh, I don't know why I didn't know. It is amazing. Why didn't I? So there's a there's a group at UCLA that specializes in this. And what ha- what the you can go if you Google UCLA center of the galaxy, you'll find some amazing videos. So what they do is they track how the stars near the center of the galaxy move over okay. years, human years, right? And okay. you end up with watching these stars whip around the center of the galaxy, from which, if you do the math, you can figure out that, yeah, there's a big black hole in the center of our galaxy. And it, oh, yeah, it's really cool. So if you go, if you Google the UCLA center of the galaxy, you'll eventually find some really cool movies that show the the, the movement of the stars. It's really neat. Right. I, I believe that uh, this makes math much more interesting than it's ever been before. Well, of course. Uh, it's always yes. much more fun to do actual science with it because, you know, grinding log division just makes everybody miserable. It's much more interesting to do right, actual it's, it's, science. Yeah. Like, like I don't want to decline all of the verbs in Latin. I want to talk Latin. Exactly. Anyway. Yes, so exactly. That's awesome. So, uh, okay. So we have, so there's a solar system. There's a milky, there's a galaxy. And then is there something bigger before we just get to the whole rest of the universe? So um, our nearest, well, our nearest little galaxy neighbors are the large Magellanic and the small Magellanic clouds. And those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere don't really see those things. But the people who live in the Southern Hemisphere are very familiar with them because you can see them from the Southern Hemisphere. And they're sort of big, blotchy things in the sky. And those are our nearest galaxy neighbors. Um, Oh. And for years, it was thought that they were on a collision course with the Milky Way. But I learned at a conference recently that they actually probably have already gone through the Milky Way at least once. (laughs) So they're coming back around for another hit. Um, Are they lapping us? (laughs) And then our nearest big galaxy neighbor is the Andromeda galaxy, M31. And um, that we are going to hit eventually. We will no longer be here by then. But (laughs) it'll, it'll, you know, the, the two galaxies will collide. And then outside of M31 and Andromeda, there's a bunch of galaxies called the local group. And so that's our clump of galaxies. And then you get out from there into the, you know, the web of galaxies in the rest of the universe. That sounds hipstery, the local group. It, it, does, sounds, it? It's, it's, it sounds like it's been gentrified somehow. Uh, we are not, astronomers are not that good at coming up with names. I mean, come on, the Big Bang. I really like Calvin's suggestion of the horrendous space kablooey. Uh, but, you know, we, we have things called the Very Large Telescope. I mean, honestly, people. We can come up with a better name. <laughs> okay. Who came up with the Big Bang? Who came up? Who named it? So it was originally a derogatory term when people were trying to figure out how the universe was formed. Somebody mm-hmm. did the math and said, well, it looks like there was a really big explosion. <laughs> and people were like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And so it started out as sort of a derogatory term. It's like, you know, Big Bang. Who, you know. And then that's what yeah. got adopted as the as the term for it. <laughs> and <then laughs> after that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon from the 80s where they called it the Her horrendous space kablooey for a long for a few years people actually were putting horrendous space kablooey in the journal articles so if you look you can find references to the h s k for the horrendous space kablooey space kablooey (laughs) i wish they would have called it that it would be so much more fun (laughs) it would be did you ever read now i digress but allow me to ask have you ever read uh the dragon riders of pern by anne mccaffrey yes yes i did and uh, there's a prequel where they uh, describe the f- the the settling of that planet, and uh, and so the first the 
not not the settling, but the discovery of that planet, uh-huh. essentially the research group that landed on it to find out if it was habitable. Uh-huh. Uh, guess what they missed? Thread. Oh, anyway, because yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were only there for a month because they had had a couple of problems. Right. But they named it PERN, which stood for Parallel Earth Resources Negligible. Oh, that's great. Yes, I know. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever read the prequel. I've read a bunch of those books, but it has been a long time since I have read those books. Well, they're super fun. They and, are. Uh, I loved them. Yeah, and, uh, and the prequel is just a novella, I think. I think it's called... Uh, Oh, well, I've lost it anyway, but you, people can look it up and, uh, but it, cause it is kind of, it's about essentially the, the people, the first of it's, it's a, it's an anthology. So the first novella is them discovering the planet and finding it, uh, habitable flying away. And then the first settlers coming and, um, trying to essentially, and discovering thread. Right. And, and, and what a pain in the ass that was. Yes. And then, but they find the fire lizards. Oh, and then yes. They, yeah, they make them into dragons. So that's kind of cool. It is who cool. doesn't want the tale of the making of dragons? Yes, especially uh, telepathic dragons. They were awesome. <laughs> exactly. You you link with at birth? Who doesn't want that? Exactly. Your best friend? Exactly. Right. I am uh, on board. So... Um, Come here. There we go. Uh, my my uh, my computer went dark, and I was like, "Don't lose it." Oh no. Okay. <laughs> here's my here's my next question. So I want to know um, about what got you into astro- astronomy. So I, I almost said astrology. Oh yeah, so that would have been bad. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I have always been in- interested in astronomy. I never remember a time in which I wasn't interested in astronomy. I was the only little girl in kindergarten, apparently, who did not bring a doll to share at the post Christmas, uh, sh- you know, share, show and tell. I brought my yeah. motorized Legos because I had not put them down since I got them. I came home in tears, wondering why my mom hadn't given me a doll. And my mom said, "You did get a doll. It's still in the package." over there (laughs) (laughs) what were the motorized legos oh they were really cool they i mean now legos have gotten even more sophisticated than they were then but it was just basically a simple motor and you could um you know you could basically put in the gears to make you know like a ferris wheel or something actually turn yeah right so that was a new thing when i was a kid and i thought that was just awesome so (laughs) so you were an engineering baby yeah (laughs) you're like i want to be an engineering in science you're like yeah we're gonna we're gonna look into how things work yeah exactly but i did fall off the the wagon for a while because this was the 70s and you know my parents did the best they could trying to encourage me but i absorbed from the culture that girls weren't supposed to be able to do math and so i had i fell off the wagon for a while in late elementary school and middle school because you know i girls can't do math did you get did you get pretty did you get super pretty no no i didn't and that you know it was like an identity (laughs) crisis for middle school me yeah. neither me yeah. neither <laughs> but certainly by in the beginning of high school i was like yeah i'm gonna figure this out you know and yeah by college screw these people exactly yeah. and by college i was like you know i'm actually doing okay here this is good so yeah right so in, in high school you probably took all of the sciences and all of the maths because yeah. you're like screw this i'm just gonna take the classes that i want to take yeah i was the so only, only girl in the seventh grade science class yep <laughs> oh wow yeah yeah because i know the um Two of my older siblings, because I have six older siblings. Oh my right? goodness! <laughs> and or f- five older siblings, and the first three, we have two separate, essentially, uh, ways that we grew up. My three older brothers were raised uh, to take shop, uh-huh. and then my fourth oldest brother was like, "I'm not taking shop. I'm taking trig, and I'm <laughs> taking chemistry, and I'm taking this." Yep. And then my sisters, but uh, just slightly older than me, said, "I am also taking trig and chemistry, and I am going to college." Excellent. And so, when it got to me, I wanted to take art and shop. Yep. But uh, I was in the group of people that were taking trig and chemistry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so <laughs> I passed I passed chemistry. Not well, um, but it was um, but I never ended up taking physics or any of the higher math, you know, the higher math right. beyond trig. And um, well, it's hard but- to take those in high school because the you know, they're trying to cram so much information into you that there's not a lot of, you know, actually playing with data and actually doing something that looks like real science because science as it's taught at, at the high school at most high school and most college levels tends to right. be here have a problem set and work through the problem set right or read the textbook and do the problem set but real science is 
nothing like that, right? Because textbook science has a series of questions and you know that each one of the questions has an answer and you know that, you know, three could be right and four could be wrong. And you know that there's a specific <laughs> set of steps you're supposed to do to get the answer, right? But okay. real science is totally different because there's no cookbook. There's no set right. of steps you're supposed to follow. You're wandering around on the edge of human knowledge. And so you have to figure out <laughs> what your question is and how you're going to yeah. go about answering it. And this is not something that can be done, you know, during a lab class, right? It's not a three-hour thing. It could be months or even years. And, you you know, working along and you think you're doing the right thing. And then it becomes apparent that, oh, no, you made a big mistake three months ago <laughs> and you got to go back and redo it all. So. Oh. Yeah, and you could like like knitting. Yes, like if you drop yes, a stitch, exactly. you have to go. Oh my god, I have to undo seventeen rows exactly. to get back to that one stitch. Exactly. Oh, exactly. That is fascinating. Yeah. So okay. yeah. So real science is is really really different than the science you get exposed to, you know, in most host, most high school classes or even a lot of well, the I, college classes. Well, I I suppose it takes like they want to teach you the basics. Yeah. And they want to make sure that it's sort of like art where they you're like you have to know how to draw a hand. Right. To draw a hand, right. you, and you have to know how to do perspective, and right. you have to know how to make things. So there's all of these sort of grinding it out. Again, Latin, right. the memorization <laughs> yeah, you, of, yes. of verbs is yeah. annoying. You have to get fluent um, in, the, in the language and the math, right, before you can do right. the more advanced stuff. But yeah. Right, right. And so, and you work in education right now, right? Yeah. I mean, so of- one, of the, one of my jobs is to run a program called NITARP, which is the NASA IPAC Teacher Archive Research Program. And so what I do is I partner small groups of mostly high school educators with a research astronomer for a year-long real research experience. And so we do the real oh. thing. It's not a matter of, you know, here's a set of questions. Don't look at the back of the book for the answers. We are right. doing real science. We are trying to right. figure We're out. We're hoping that you will discover something. Right, exactly. That'd be awesome. Exactly. And so... <laughs> you and your fresh, elastic brain. <laughs> yeah, so trying to, <laughs> trying to help the, the teachers get a sense of what real science is like and how different it is than textbook science. And uh, they get to bring along students, too, so the students learn as well. But our, the reason we work with teachers is because of the multiplicative factor, right? Because if I work with a student, that's great. If I change that student's life, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. if I change the teacher's life, then uh. I am changing the way that he or she teaches science to the 30 kids they have in each of six periods this year, next year, the year after, and, and the year after. Ongoing. And so that that multiplicative effect is why we work with teachers. Because honestly, there's not that many professional astronomers in the U.S. And so we have to rely on on, on deputies, right? We have to we have to right. we have to use that kind of multiple multiplication factor because I can't I can't go out and teach everybody. So I have to no. you, you know I teach teachers so that they can go out and teach everybody. Right. 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 It's uh, you know that I um, I I like to bring it down to the mundane after you've said something profound. (laughs) Allow me. uh, I once got my hair cut at a fancy hairdresser salon in London, England. And um, it was one of those schools. Right. You could Uh go for 15 bucks, 20 pounds or whatever it was. And it was and these were um, men and women hairdressers from around the United States and the world who had come to this fancy Aveda salon to learn from amazing hairdressers right and so uh the the instructor was wandering around you know helping people pointing out you know what they were doing right what they were doing wrong he comes to my chair and he goes this is great this is you're you're really you're building it right you're doing this the layers are wonderful the next time he comes around he goes you've ruined it oh no and uh (laughs) so i looked in the mirror i was like what happened and uh, i i of course couldn't tell because uh i was just getting a haircut but um (laughs) but it was it was like it was like that where you're like you have everyone has all this amazing you know there's someone who's amazing at what they do and and to sort of create apprentices or apostles or or the multiplicative is uh, a great word and i will be practicing it in front of the mirror (laughs) well Um, another analogy that i like to use is 
Um, you know, because I grew up in, in the Washington, D.C. area where football is okay. king. And I don't care how poor your school is in Virginia <laughs> or, for that matter, Texas, you are going to have a football coach who's actually played football. You would never ask somebody to be the football coach if they had never played football. And there's a huge amount of jargon you need to learn in order to play football oh. properly, in order to explain what the plays are. You have to understand the perspective that they're coming from and what they're asking you to do. But in science, you very few high school teachers have ever done real science. Few of them have okay. even worked with real data. And so we're asking them to teach science without ever having done it. And that's a big ask. And a lot of the teachers are working really hard to do that. But that is hard, right. especially given the new standards that are coming through where they're being asked to teach science in a more authentic way. If they've never done it, gosh, I, I, that's a big, big hill to climb. Yeah. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing is to try to help them understand, oh, this is how science works. Okay. And that is so cool. Yeah. I think so anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have, uh, do you have, do, we can get back to education, but I was going to ask you if you had any sort of, cause you were talking about Galileo, like who were your sort of inspirational? Do, I mean, I'm sure this is like people asking me who my favorite comics, <laughs> but who are you, do you have, uh, good scientist stories for me? Oh, that's what I'm hoping sure. for. Sure. So, um, I, sure. so the, um, I, I, I don't, I try to, to take uh, take advantage of all of the good examples of behavior and, and techniques and people that I see around me. So I, so I try to learn from everyone all the time. And um, there is a uh, – so I was at the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, meeting in Prague, the Czech Republic. And that meeting – so the IAU is the, the big organization of professional astronomers worldwide. And they have meetings every few years. And they are in charge of naming things. And so they had decided a couple of IAUs prior to demote Pluto. And oh, right. it went over very poorly with the community at large. And so they assembled another committee, this time consisting of historians and astronomers. And I think there was even a sociologist on the committee. Oh, wow. And they were going to make formal recommendations, again, uh, revising their previous opinion. They were going to make formal recommendations about Pluto. And so they had a special lunch meeting at the IAU, um, mm -hmm. and they uh, they spent, in my opinion, unfortunately, a good chunk of their dedicated hour being rather self-congratulatory on all the work that they had done. And then, <laughs> then they announced that they were going to demote Pluto again. Oh, and my God. There so they're was, human. Yeah. So there was no <laughs> – there was very little time for discussion. And the few people that did get up – I mean, most of the time, people at astronomy meetings are very, very polite. They're very yeah. – formal, you know, but at this meeting, there was actual yelling. Okay. In the <laughs> comment period afterwards, some, somebody yelled, I were, yeah, I do such and such. And if it was good enough for Kepler, it ought to be good enough for you. I mean, it was just, it was really amazing. And so oh, that's a that, great line that particular, exactly. So that particular part of the, of the meeting did not go well. And there was grassroots rebellion all over the meeting. And so they had to have additional um, splinter meetings during the whole rest of the of the week, a week and a half, whatever it was, um, to try to to try to come to agreement on what was going on. And so, what's really going on is it's just a matter of what you call things, right? So, let me digress for a little bit. So, yes, if please. you define a sandwich, right? So yeah. it's got to be if you define a sandwich as um, meat between two pieces of bread. Well, mm -hmm. you've left out a vegetarian sandwich, and you've also yep. left out like an open face sandwich, right? Oh, right. And so yes. now you have to expand your definition to include open face sandwiches. But then a pizza is bread with meat on it. <laughs> so does that make a pizza a sandwich? And then what about oh, hot right. dogs? Where do hot dogs fit in? Are hot Where dog sandwiches? Hot dogs Right. Or, and, or, a, or a meat pie. Exactly. So it just yeah. it gets it gets really complicated quickly. But in part, that's an artificial restriction, depending on how you want to define sandwich. Right. So here, that's right. the same thing with the with the planets in our solar system. Right. So um, when I mentioned earlier that when our planets formed, they were all in the, in the disk, you know, of the proto solar system. And they all ended up being formed out of the disk. So they're all in the plane going the same direction. Pluto is an oddball. Pluto is not in the plane. Pluto is actually oh. quite inclined. And so we we've known it was weird. Wait, say, 
what? say that again. Quite what? It's not. It's it's very different, right? It's inclined. It's at an angle. Okay. So it's not. Okay. It's not quite in the plane of the galaxy. I mean, sorry, plane of the solar system. Um, right. So it, you know, it's at a, you know, it's it's clearly different, right? It's a clearly different yeah. than than the other planets, right? And also in our solar system, we've got a whole bunch of rocky things close to the sun, and then a whole bunch of gassy things further out, and then Pluto is once again right. rocky. So Pluto is just weird in a lot of ways. And, you know, as our understanding of the contents of our solar system have evolved, we've learned that there are lots of other things like Pluto out there. They're in a thing called what this that's called the Kuiper Belt. And those guys are also remnants of our disk, our original formation disk, but they are very far out. And some of them Mm -hmm. are bigger than Pluto. And they're all kind of like that. They're not quite, you know, they're sort of in the plane, but not quite in the plane. And they're rocky ice balls. And it turns out that, yeah, there are things larger than Pluto. So if you want to call Pluto a planet, then you probably should also call the things out in, you know, Uh, it's it's, it's brethren out there, also planets. Right. Right. And then you start to say, okay, well, well, if Pluto is big enough to be a planet, what about Ceres? Ceres is the largest thing in the asteroid belt. Right. So should that be a planet? (laughs) Is that also a planet? Yeah, it just gets very complicated. And so the decision, uh, it's just a matter of what you call it. Right. And so we're going to call Ceres and Pluto and its friends out there in the Kuiper Belt dwarf planets, meaning that they're not a planet like Jupiter. They're not a planet like Earth or Mars, um, but they are still planets. They're just dwarf planets. It's just a different, you know, different adjective. But at any rate, going back to the IAU, in the context of this, there was legions of angry astronomers. And people who were publishing (laughs) screeds and distributing them on paper during the meeting and wholesale rebellion. So Mm -hmm. um, there's, I mean, it was just, it's just a little terrifying, right? So um, there's a... Especially if you're used to a a, a certain decorum, you're like, what the, it's a free-for-all. Yes. Anyway. Yes. So Jocelyn Bell is a famous astronomer. And the reason she's famous is because she discovered pulsars. And her advisor got the Nobel Prize for it. So, oh, dude. Yeah, exactly. So she's famous for that. But she is also (laughs) an amazing woman. She is very small in stature. She is a very tiny woman. But mm-hmm. she dominated one of these discussions because she was on she was on the IAU um, uh, like the the board basically the panel yeah, yeah not the panel that reviewed the status of Pluto but but the oh. on the board that convened that panel right uh-huh. and so she ran one of these lunch meetings and so she was standing in a room full of like 150 angry astronomers. And so here is this tiny woman bringing this entire herd of unruly astronomers to heel. She said, okay, Mm -hmm. I study pulsars. I have no personal stake in the status of whether or not Pluto is a planet, much less exoplanets. (laughs) I study pulsars. I have no stake in this. So here's how it's going to go. You will have the mic for 45 seconds. If you cannot make your point in 45 seconds, I will cut you off. And so she did. (laughs) She had several a series of comments. And then she put up on, you know, at the time we had an overhead projector, I think, because um, I think right. she was writing out longhand. So she said, okay, well, what about these words? And then she would stop everybody, put up the words, let people have a chance to read the words. And then she would take a vote. Is this okay? Is this not okay? And then b- based on the response, she would change yep. a word or change a sentence. And okay, will this be okay? Yes. Okay, let's go. So she took this group of 150, 200 angry astronomers, brought yeah. them to heel and made discernible progress on this very contentious matter <laughs> in the space yeah. of an hour. She was wow. amazing. She She's was a freaking really hero. Incre- exactly. So things like that are the kinds of things that I try to remember, right? The next time I have to right. be <laughs> trying to bring a group of angry cats to herd. You know? <laughs> you know? Right, right. And, and, and literally, I mean, her having not a, no horse in that race had to simplify it. I mean, were the other groups sometimes run by people who did have a horse in that race? So she, yeah, she was trying to, she was trying to make the group go forward and and change it from what was just a a complaining session or a ranting session into something that was actually making forward progress. But the people, the people that were most angry about this were people who studied things in our solar system. You know, is this a planet? Is it not a planet? Um, And are the other things that are being found out there planets or not? Um, But then the other people that were angry 
were people who studied exoplanets. Because if you're going to call oh. a certain number of things in our solar system planets, then it, it you know, you have to think about what the ramifications are for that naming scheme when you start finding other planets. And so okay. the, the definition that came out of that meeting sounds a little strange and dorky. And, and, and among other things, the term clear its orbit or something to that effect, which indicates that asteroids that are surrounded by debris right wouldn't yeah. be counted as planets but a, an asteroid that has enough mass to pull itself into a sphere which Ceres does mm -hmm. that means it's a dwarf planet so pluto isn't has enough mass that it too is can pull itself by its own self gravity into a sphere so that is also and, a planet and a here and here we go back to basics yeah. when i ask this question uh saturn has rings it that does. looks like debris for me it does is that is that not debris? It is debris, um, but the gaps in the in the um, so the well, it's big enough. Yeah, maybe. so the 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 gaps. So the physics, right, of the, the yeah. thin disk around the planet is the same kind of physics we've been talking about before, because this is the same right. sort of physics where you have a central young star and a disk of matter going around it, or the the Milky Way with the mass in the center and the disk going around it. So it's the same physics, it's just different scale. And you're absolutely right that the rings of Saturn are very very thin compared to mm -hmm. the rest of Saturn. And the gaps in those disks are, or the gaps in that ring, rather, are created by moonlets, right? The disks, the, 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 the ring itself was probably formed from a disrupted moon that was literally pulled apart by Saturn's gravity. Um, and oh, okay. the, the gaps in the rings are because you have these little moonlets or these moons, they, they're, they're sometimes called shepherd moons because they're shepherding the matter in the, in the oh. ring around. And so it's those gaps that you, when you have a gap, you can probably figure out that there's a little moon or moonlet creating it. Right. And that same, do you remember? Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that same physics works elsewhere, too, right? We're looking at, you know, disks around other stars, and it has they have gaps. And so do they have planets? That's exactly what some people are trying to figure out right now, is does a gap mean there oh. has to be a planet? Or can there be a gap if there's just a, another planet making another gap nearby? That's all I was going to okay. say. Sorry, go ahead. Yay. Oh, no, my question was, is I forget how many moons Jupiter has. Oh, both Jupiter and Saturn have a ton. Oh, my gosh. I don't even like, remember. Yeah. Right. But piles. Tens and, piles and tens of them, right? of them. Yeah. And I think Pluto, I think it was, I think, um, I think Neptune just got 30 more, okay. I think. I can't remember. Oh, they found 30 but, more? Yeah. No, because there's these little tiny rocks, right? And these big gas giants snag these little tiny rocks, you know, from comets as they're coming by or, you mm -hmm. know, leftover debris from the solar system formation. So, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of wow. moons. Yeah. There's legions of them. And, and the, and this isn't, you know, you pr you probably know this, but um, what is the moon made of? Rock, not <laughs> yeah, rock. rock. Just a pile of rock. Yeah, pretty it's much. not minerals. It's not. Is um, it? No, what kind of rock? Is it granite? Um, is it limestone? What are we looking at? That's a good question. So um, I am not a geologist, but my understanding is that limestone, mm. you need water. And I don't think Fair the enough. moon has had very much water. So our best understanding of how the moon formed was in the young solar system. There was a proto-Earth and there was another um, object in our orbit that was about the size of Mars. And so as the planets were forming, uh, it was kind of a rough and tumble environment, and it, it hit us, right? And so right. that the that impact pulled off some debris from Earth. And so the Earth-Moon system probably had a ring at some point, a ring of debris, uh -huh. that before it got mm -hmm. collected up. And when the moon was formed, it was very close to us, but we're steadily losing the moon. So it's um, further now than it was when the dinosaurs were here. Um, okay. So, but yeah, so the, it's, the moon is literally made up of the same thing that the earth is the earth the inner earth is so oh, okay yeah so the same kinds of um volcanic rock is is what Fair most enough. of the moon is there is some water there not a lot there's no atmosphere on the moon so it, you know obviously it's a much different place than earth but the the core of it is similar mm -hmm. to the core you know to the deep inside the earth because it was made from the same stuff Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that one of my favorite science classes, because I had to take uh, certain science classes in in college to get the science, uh, you know, there were required classes, right? Right, right. And um, I took one class, which I thought was going to be easy. It was called the History of the Weather. Oh, that sounds and, like fun. Uh, right. I thought it was going to be uh, sort of, 
It was a lot of graphs. Uh, it was not what I was looking for. Uh, it was what it was was a lot of science, <laughs> not a lot of history. Right. And uh, but I took this other class, which was literally just the history of science, is what it was called, and that was what I was looking for. They right. would like explain Galileo's principles, and then they would tell us the gossip about Galileo. Oh, there you go. <laughs> And I literally, that was my favorite, that was my, one of my favorite science classes in, in college. So like, I can't remember who the original like astronomers were. I mean, I mean, in Western society, it was, it was the Greeks, right? Yeah. But also the Arabs, right? There are lots of, lots of Arabian astronomers. That's how you end up with names that are, you know, names of stars that are mangled Arabic, right? It's because of that heritage. Yeah. And nobody knows how to pronounce it, so they're just and saying been, it's been mangled beyond belief. Like Beetlejuice, it, we're not even sure what what Arabic that might have come from. There's two different camps, one of which thinks it's the shoulder of the giant, and the other camp thinks it's like I think it was the goat with the black spot on it or something, something strange oh. like that. Right, right, because they're they they all come from from Arabic fr- words, from, yeah, right, from Arabic words and from Arabic mythology, yes. much like yes. much of the Greek mythology. Yep. Uh, I heard, yeah, because I remember when it was the Dark Ages in Europe, it was a renaissance in Northern Africa yeah. and the Arab world, if I remember yeah. correctly. And then when the um, Europeans had the renaissance, they picked up the, the education from the Arabic books, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. They just, it was a discovery of, of all of the things they had been working on for 100 years, yep. 200 years. Uh, that's kind of fascinating. And then I had another question. What... What else? Um, yeah, so let's go back. I mean, we're we're doing good, but we have uh, we have some time. What are your favorite things that you're studying right now oh, that gosh. are kind of cool? Gosh, um, so uh, bear with me because we're going to have to go a little bit a little bit deep here. So, trying to sure. understand, we, we started out <laughs> talking a little bit about the sun's rotation, right? And so right. I I have so there's a lot of missions and a lot of surveys going on right now trying to find exoplanets, right? And a lot of them are looking for exoplanet transit. So what that means is you've got the star and the planet, you know, way far away, but the planet orbiting the star makes a T tiny little dip and in order to believe that the planet is there you have to see at least one preferably more of these transits right where the the planet is moving in between us and the star creating a tiny little dip well the spots on the stars are enormous and so they create much bigger dips and so a lot of the people studying exoplanets are specifically avoiding the real the stars with big spots because that just makes it a whole lot harder to find the planets right but i of course am interested in the plant in the stars i mean planets are cool and all but i'm interested right. in the stars right and so right. i sort of get the leavings of a lot of these exoplanet missions because okay. i i care about the stars right and so if and, i find and there's still plenty of data for, oh of that. so much data so much data so <laughs> um so there was a mission called kepler which um mm-hmm. flew a while ago and its original original mission which it completed was to stare at one chunk of sky for literally years looking for these tiny little dips due to the exoplanets and they deliberately picked this field huh. to be cons- to consist of lots of older stars so they wouldn't have to worry about the stars variability to find the planets and and then um some of the so in order to steer a spacecraft you have gyroscopes Mm -hmm. on the spacecraft and you need at least three in order to point a spacecraft and to keep it pointing in the same position because if you're looking for really tiny dips you've got to keep that telescope pointed in exactly the same place no wobbling in order for you to find the little tiny dips that are exoplanets well kepler had a bunch of gyros on board and it was down it they broke and it was down to just two gyros and they still had enough fuel on board and the spacecraft was still working just fine. It's just that it had only two gyros. So lots and lots of clever engineers got together and figured out how we can make this work. So basically they, instead of, they used the two gyros they had left and then for the third dimension of control, they used, believe it or not, the pressure from the solar wind. So I'm doing this right now and of course you can't see me. (laughs) So the spacecraft would point in two directions just fine and then be, be blown by the 
the solar wind over and it would use a little fuel to push back and then blown over and push back. So sort of like a rocking chair. It would move like this, right? Like a pendulum. Yeah, kind of. And so the spacecraft was still working and the the data were still phenomenal because you're capable of looking for little tiny changes. But now you're limited with where you can point. And as a result of this, we had then access to stars of a much larger range of masses and ages than we ever thought was going to be possible with this. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the the people who were looking for planets, and so these these campaigns would go for about 70 days and they'd pick another field and do 70 days and then do another field. So I have so much, I have a whole new appreciation for mailman, right? Because the mail just keeps what? coming. You can never get on top of it. And the data from this mission just kept coming and coming and coming. Oh, wow. And you can't ever, you, you cannot process it fast enough to get the science out. So I am swimming in data wow. from this mission. The mission finally ended. It ran out of fuel, but I have no shortage of data. I, right. I, I just put submitted a paper that involves data, I think, from campaign four and 12. And I think there were 18 campaigns. So wow. I have a lot of data still to go through. So that's what I've been spending a lot of time on lately is looking at how the rotation rate changes in all of these stars of of different masses and different ages than we ever thought we'd be able to see and trying to understand, you know, how which ones are likely are going fast and which ones are going slow. And I have a whole bunch that go around in hours and, you know, they're spinning so fast that it's likely that they're close to break up. In other words, they're close to spinning themselves apart. And then I have lots of others that are going mysteriously very, very, very slowly, like longer than 30 days. So, yeah, it's really cool. It's a puzzle, but it's really cool. That's a cool puzzle. I have this very basic question. Uh, I've heard of it. I'm sure someone has explained it to me. Can you explain it to me again? What is a gyroscope? So uh, it's a well, it's a cool toy, right? If you've ever had one, it's there. They have. I think it's a cool toy. I've seen. Yeah, them. yeah, and they have basically three nested rings that rotate in different directions. And so okay. the one that I had as a kid was metal, and you could put a string around, you wrap it around the top, and then you'd pull mm-hmm. off the the string really fast and get it spinning, and then it would be amazingly stable, right? It would just, it would balance on one on one end of the so there was an axis that went through the whole thing a metal axis and yeah. it would balance on one end of that for a really long time until the wheels slowed down due to friction and then it would fall over so okay so it's like a top yeah kind of only it's got a, a top is usually solid and the gyroscope yeah. is going to have rings in going able to go in three different directions so um the magic of it is that remember earlier i was talking about you have to keep track of where the spin is going right okay when you get yeah. this thing going you've got all sorts of angular momentum and so that's that conservation of angular momentum that, that keeping that that spin energy so to speak um is what's keeping it stable and when you're in space you don't if you build your gyros right you don't have a lot of friction and so they just always spin and the way that you control the spacecraft is you change the spin of in one direction of some of the gyros and then the spacecraft moves in response because spin. oh my god that's so cool it is really cool really complicated <laughs> but really cool yeah yeah that i i appreciate you putting that in an english that i'm like Oh, I get that. Uh, it'll be gone in about two hours. Well, but, the, the key point uh, is that it helps it stabilize, right? It, it's yeah, yeah, use, yeah. using spinning to help stabilize, which is sort of counterintuitive, but it works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing was I was going to... Was that question? Oh, here it is. It was so there is uh, one of those universeunplugged.org, by the way. People could go there if they want to see the half hour that we did together mm-hmm. uh, with another scientist and we talked about uh, stars. But I did a couple, I've done a couple other episodes with them, and um, one of them was about exoplanets. Yep. And uh, I learned what an exoplanet was, which was amazing. And there was an Australian uh, astrophysicist. Yes, mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, and she tweeted a thing the other day it was a picture of Elon Musk's Occupy Mars mm-hmm. logo. And she said, for the last time, that's the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, there are pictures of Mars, right? Yes. Like he could have many pictures okay. of Mars. Yes. <laughs> so he could have put a picture of Mars on the logo. Yeah. You think people recognize the moon. Maybe it's a marketing strategy. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That is, uh, who knows what he's doing. And um, 
but that is fascinating. So, so that, so what, how do you spell Kepler? K-E-P-L-E-R. So just, oh, one yeah. And it, he okay. was a, the man, Kepler, the man was a, um, mm-hmm. was a Polish astronomer and he figured out how the planets move in our solar system. And so when they were building a mission to look for other planets, they thought Kepler would be an appropriate name. So Kepler is the name of the mission as well. And when the mission changed to use just two of the gyros, it became called uh, K2, meaning like the second generation, but also K2, like the summit, um, you know, like, like, climbing a high mountain, something difficult oh, right. to accomplish, right? So, it, you know, it, the name of that portion of the mission, even though it was the same physical spacecraft, is K2. Because they didn't know how it would work. Exactly. It was, a, it was, a, it was quite a, a thing. Yeah, exactly. And now, so the, the Kepler, um, that, that, the whole thing's over. You have more data than you can shake a stick at. Oh, yeah. And, uh, what do you, what are the current, are, are there current like stars? Like, are there spaceships looking at star systems right now or are there, is it, is it mostly telescope work? Um, well, you or mean, are there, I'm, I'm not sure what you're asking because the, the, all of NASA's missions, right. You think of, when you think of robot, you think of, you know, like, like, what's his face? The danger, danger, real Robinson, right? You think of, or C-3PO, <laughs> right? Or R2-D2. Sure. Um, but all of these uncrewed missions, right? Whether it's a right. spacecraft of any sort, right? Something that looks at the Earth or something that looks at the moon or something that goes to Mars, they're all robots, right? They're all, okay. auto- you know, they're all built to operate you know, somewhat at least autonomously, right? Because they're um, empowered to do something and then call home and check in and get more instructions and then go off okay. and do the next thing. So all of them are are robots in that sense. The robots that drive around Mars are, of course, completely different than the ones that, you know, like Kepler that orbit the sun and, um, you know, send back data every so often. So they're all, they're all space robots. Um, but there are a lot of both ground-based and space-based missions that are looking for planets. There's a mission called TESS right now, which is observing um, lots and lots of relatively nearby bright stars to try to look for those those little teeny tiny dips that signify that there's a planet there Mm -hmm. or more than one. But are there, are there spacecraft out? Like is Kepler still sending data? No, 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 but it's still in orbit. Just like Spitzer is no longer sending data, but also still in orbit. So both Kepler and Spitzer have similar orbits. They're trailing behind the earth. They're orbiting the sun. They're not orbiting the earth. They're orbiting the sun. So they're trailing behind the earth. Oh yeah. And just, and, and for years have been sending data of, of what yeah. they're seeing. Yeah. But the sun. Uh, there's a, it's a common misconception that I've encountered more than once that um, spacecraft like Hubble fly out to these places and then come back. No, Hubble's in orbit around the earth. Um, and so it's just a matter of pointing the, the spacecraft and staring for a long time at these fabulous places because they're all so far away. We can never, ever go visit them. So we're just taking advantage of all the light that we can. And I, by that, I mean, not just the optical light, but light that we can't see with our own eyes, like uh, infrared or x-rays. We try to take advantage of all the different kinds of light coming from these things because they're, you know, we can't, not only can we not ever go visit them, we can't uh, pick them up and turn them around or put them in a jar in a lab and watch them. You know, these are all things we can't, you know, it makes us different from a lot of science because we can't go visit these places. And so we're just trying to, you know, we're trying to figure out as much as we can from what we, you know, from what we have. And it's interesting because there are sort of overlaps with other, um, with other fields, like the medical imaging field and astronomy imaging have, you know, taken advantage of each other's advancements in terms of image processing. But the medical imaging, of course, you can turn the person around, right? You can take a picture of the injury from another direction. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can never do in astronomy. Right. So, yeah. Uh. So it's, it's very different. So we're just trying to take advantage of all of the light that we have from these objects to try to figure out what they are. And so we send them into space because the the magnetism and the, or the gravity or whatever, there's a lot of sort of static on the Earth. If we can get it out into space, it clears it up? It's The right? main thing is the atmosphere, right? I love the atmosphere. It keeps us warm and keeps us breathing. This is a really Pro good atmosphere. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the atmosphere is not very stable, and it absorbs a lot of the light or scatters it depending on the wavelength. So um, there's, uh, in order to take really, really uh, 
precise images in terms by which I mean like really high spatial resolution, like really fine, you know, I'm trying to think of a good analogy because um, focus implies another whole um, Pandora's box of things. But if you want to take pictures okay. of things that are really close together, you have to get up above the atmosphere so that mm -hmm. the atmosphere doesn't smear it out so that you can actually see the two distinct objects that you know are there. And so um, that's the main thing is to get up above the atmosphere because if you study, if you're an ultraviolet astronomer, the UV yeah. doesn't really make it down to the ground. I mean, I know that's hard to believe after you spent the day at the ballpark or whatever and you're burned to a crisp, but that's the UV right. from the sun, which is really, really strong. And it scatters, right? Because if you go to the beach, um, then the mm -hmm. UV light bounces off the water and the sand and gets you burned even faster. Um, so yeah. that that UV light from celestial sources doesn't make it unscathed through the atmosphere. So if you're an ultraviolet astronomer, you've got to go to space. And for a lot of infrared, too, you have to go to space. For x-rays, you have to go to space just because you have to get up above the atmosphere. And so that's yeah. that's the main reason people go to space is to get up above the atmosphere, either because the light doesn't make it all the way through or because the light blurs out the, the okay. the, you know, it smears the, the yeah. objects. Wow. Holy smokes. Well, what you should know, uh, by the way, I have mentioned your name once. Uh, <laughs> Louisa Rabol, right? Yes. Is it my, am yes. I putting the accent on the right? Rabol? Yes. There we go. It is L Rabol on Twitter, probably Instagram too, and all the things. Yes, I think so. I'm not very active on Instagram, but yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, you are work over at Caltech and you work uh, at uh, NASA and it's, uh, or with NASA and Science. Yes, lots okay. of science. So, <laughs> lots and lots of science. This has been a fascinating. Uh, I have learned things that are very basic that I should have remembered. And I've also... Right. I love to be reminded. And I love to be the person that asks that question because maybe somebody did not know. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, there, and there's no dumb questions. I mean, the only dumb thing is to not ask them because I'm sitting here, you know, chatting with you. You might as well ask them. I mean, come on. I might as well. Right. And you have been incredibly incredibly generous with your time no and problem. with your brain box. My pleasure. So I appreciate that so much. So thank you so much for doing the show. No problem. My pleasure. And Rangers, you know the rules out there and it's more important than ever. Take care of each other. And wash your hands. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat, <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh, my God. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?